have a Bible with you, open up to the book of Romans, the Romans chapter 14. For the last three weeks, we've been in a series that I've entitled Law, Liberty, and Love. And we're finishing out on love here last week and this week of Romans chapter 14. And so the title of the sermon this morning is Loving Your Brother is Giving Up Your Liberty. Last week, the name of the sermon was Loving Your Brother is Giving Him Liberty. This week, the title of the sermon is Loving Your Brother is Giving Up Your Liberty. So Romans chapter 14, verses 13 to the end of the chapter, and we'll dive into our time here together. Verse 13 says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord, Jesus, that nothing, in, that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith, for whatever, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Father, we pray that this morning as we come before you, as we come to Jesus, as we come to your word, as we come to this book that is inspired by the Holy Spirit, that every word, every jot, and every tittle of it is true. I pray that you would help us to see the flow of love and the flow of liberty and the flow of sacrifice and the flow of deference, and the flow of unity, and the flow of wanting to build each other up, and the flow of wanting to understand that we have much liberty, but we also have much love. And because we have much love, we want to be careful about our liberties, that we might exercise them only in a way that would bring you glory and honor and praise. You would give us wisdom in this great area, that you would allow us to be convicted this morning, to be encouraged this morning, to be empowered this morning with the truths of Scripture in a way that would set our hearts free and allow us to walk in that freedom with one another, to truly love one another so much that we would be willing to give up anything and everything in order to seek the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace here at our church and in our families and with other believers in a way that all people would know that we are Christians by our love. Be exalted in this time together this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, I want to begin this morning by sharing with you an illustration from Dr. A.T. Schofield. He said that in London, there are three sorts of dogs. There is the dog on a chain with a master who regularly pays his tax. This dog has law, but no liberty. The second type of dog is a stray dog for whom no tax is paid, who steals his meals where he can, and he has liberty, but no law. And lastly, there is that third type of dog that has and understands the law of liberty. In like manner, these three classes are largely exemplified in the people of any great city. There are thousands of young men and women who in their parents' country homes are under strict law with little liberty. And when they come to London and find themselves at liberty with no law, unless they then join the third class and understand the law of liberty, their liberty soon degrades into license, and they, like the stray dogs of which we have spoken, soon reach their inglorious end. And then A.T. Schofield says this, some years ago, I had a collie named Jock, a thoroughbred, a beautiful dog with large, lustrous eyes, sent to me by a dear friend, and when he arrived in London, he was perfectly wild, for he had never seen a city. The first thing, therefore, I had to do was to buy a strong collar and chain him and put him at once under law. Within the four walls of our house, he could not go far wrong. And whenever we went out, he held up his neck to have the chain put on, which gave him no more liberty than about six feet. He would bound on the doorstep as if to go out right away, but at once was pulled up by the chain which alone prevented his liberty degenerating into license. There can be no doubt that law is a most valuable power for keeping both dogs and men clean and respectable. And indeed, just as we shall see, it is essential up to a certain point. But one day, my dog reached that point. He came to me in the hall as usual to have his chain put on, but I knew that a great change had taken place in that dog's spirit. I said, no chain today, Jock. You can go where you like. I opened the door, and for the first time, he was apparently free. I say apparently because he was not really free, although he had no chain. He bounded away and vanished around the corner, But in a moment or two, he came and without my saying a word, trotted quietly back and stood beside me. What was the invisible chain that brought him back without fail? It was the simple fact that that dog had given me his heart for which he could not run away. And there is nothing on earth like the heart of a dog for faithfulness and unflinching loyalty, one who wants to please his master. And once he has given its heart, he cannot take it back. And the only language it knows and expresses in its beautiful eyes are the words of Ruth, where thou goest, I will go. 
and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. This then is the law of liberty, for the law of liberty is the law of love. Now, in the first part of Romans 14, primarily, it addressed the weaker brother. The second half of Romans 14 that we're looking at this morning will be addressing primarily the stronger brother. A weaker brother is no less of a Christian, but he does have a sensitive conscience about Christian liberties. And a Christian liberty is something that God's word does not specifically condemn or forbid. A Christian liberty is something that should only be exercised, however, if it is bringing glory to God and not becoming a stumbling block for your brother or sister in Christ. And the mature Christian is one who will forego their Christian liberty if exercising that liberty causes another to stumble. And like the illustration of the dog brought to London, when your heart belongs to your master, you will give up your freedom in order to stay by his side. Your job as a Christian is not to be controlled by people, but to be controlled by the love of God. There is nothing like the heart of a believer for faithfulness and unflinching loyalty to his master. There is an invisible chain that keeps us walking so close to our heavenly father that we could never imagine, imagine barking at, growling at, or biting any other creature because of our love for God and our love for our fellow man. While in many ways we are free to bound through this world without care, real freedom is also about giving up your liberties in order to live out your faith and your devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I want to give you four principles that are challenging the stronger brother to love the weaker brother by being willing to give up his liberties. Four principles, mainly challenging the stronger brother. Number one, love and do not destroy your brother. Your first blank, if you are taking notes, says, do not pass judgment on a brother. Look at the first part of verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Last week, we talked about how whether or not a Christian could eat meat sacrificed to idols. And the conclusion was, it doesn't matter if you do, and it doesn't matter if you don't. But in Rome and in Corinth, eating meat that was sacrificed to idols was often seen by the weaker brother as going against their conscience for them to eat it. And so Paul set the record straight in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, when he said, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So he made it abundantly clear that he doesn't care if you eat the meat or not. That's not the real principle. The real principle is, what's your motive behind what you're doing, and are you loving God and eating it in faith if you do eat it, and are you loving God and being willing to give it up if you believe it could be a stumbling block to your friend? And in doing that, we can't be passing judgment on each other. Look back, if you will, at verse 10, Romans 14, verse 10, where we ended last week. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, 
why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. He's saying, you can't ultimately judge each other. God is your judge. You will stand or fall before a holy God. So don't try to please man, but please God. Each one of us will stand before God. We are not to judge each other in the area of Christian liberties. We might ask questions of each other. We might challenge each other. We might sharpen each other. But we should not be passing judgment on each other. It will be a great temptation for the self-righteous, weaker brother to judge the stronger brother's exercise of his liberties. And here in verse 13, it can also be a great temptation for the prideful, stronger brother to judge the weaker brother for abstaining from certain liberties. This problem was causing great disunity in the church. Two Christians arguing over and judging each other over small fish where we're supposed to be focusing on large fish. The big fish issues is what we want to be known as as a church. The word judgment here in verse 13 when he says, therefore, let us not pass judgment. That word means to criticize, to find fault with, or to condemn. And part of the reason that we're not to pass judgment on each other when it comes to Christian liberties is that exercising Christian liberties is not a sin. So to pass a judgment on something that the Bible doesn't say is a clear sin is now you being judgmental. You have no right to judge another person's Christian liberties. There is nothing to confront. And so therefore, Paul says, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Maybe throughout this series, you have passed judgment in your heart against someone who you thought was wrong. And I want to encourage you not to do this any longer. If someone is in clear sin on a black and white issue, it is our responsibility to confront that sin in private. It is our responsibility, according to Jesus in Matthew 18, to then take two or three with us in order to confront that sin. It is our responsibility to then take that sin to the church so that the entire assembly and gathering can then lovingly admonish that one wayward soul in an effort to restore them in a right relationship with God and in a right relationship with each other. But that includes issues that are clear sin. When it comes to Christian liberties, things like eating meat sacrificed to idols in this context, drinking wine or alcohol, smoking cigars, listening to a certain type of movie uh, or music or watching a certain type of movie, just to name a few, some of those areas are gray areas that we cannot be judging one another on. And the point of the first part of verse 13 is that we are not to pass judgment on one another any longer. Let your brother in Christ do what they do before the Lord. And we exercise Christian liberties or we abstain from Christian liberties in a way that would honor the Lord and that would display a humble heart and in a way that we would be giving thanksgiving to God 
whether you do those liberties or whether you don't. The key here in the first part of 13 is don't judge others by the decisions that they make. And not only that, the second bullet point there, B says, do not put a stumbling block in the way of a brother. Look at the second half of verse 13, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. When we, when we read there where it says, but rather decide to never put a stumbling block, that word decide can also be translated as the word judgment. But it is a different word from the first word in the verse that actually says judgment. This word decide is slightly different. It means in this context to come to a conclusion after a cognitive process. And so Paul is saying that now that you have evaluated the whole situation, now that you realize that the weaker brother must live in accordance with his conscience, if he determines that he cannot eat meat sacrificed to idols, then that is his prerogative. And if the weaker brother esteems, as we talked about last week, certain days as a special time of worship based on feasts or habits of his Jewish religion of the past, then Paul says, let them have those days. That's not what the gospel is all about. The gospel is about Jesus. The gospel is about the crucifixion. The gospel is about the resurrection. And so whether you eat certain foods or not, or celebrate certain festivals or not, your job, if you consider yourself to be a stronger brother, your job is to be careful to never put a stumbling block or a hindrance in his way. For example, the New Testament does not forbid the use of alcohol. Ephesians 5.18 says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but rather be filled with the Spirit. So we understand there's a drunken state that is clearly sent in the Bible, but that doesn't mean that drinking any alcohol on any occasion is a sin. We also know that Paul actually told Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach to help him with frequent ailments in 1 Timothy 5.23. We know that Jesus turned the water into wine in John chapter 2 where the master of the ceremony tasted it. And then he said, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you kept the good wine until now. And when Jesus made wine, he made it good. So good, everybody wanted some, and he meant for them to have some to celebrate what God had instituted in giving marriage for one man to be married to one woman for all time. That's the way that the celebration was to happen there in John 2 when Jesus made this best-tasting wine ever known to man. I mean, it beat Napa Valley, all right? That's what Jesus did. So it is not a sin to drink alcohol, but for some... It goes against their conscience. If the weaker brother chooses not to drink, but then the stronger brother drinks in his presence, it could tempt the weaker brother to drink. And if he has a propensity to getting drunk, then you could say that that stronger brother, by flaunting his liberty, has now put a stumbling block in the way of a brother. I mean, certainly this would happen if somebody's a recovering alcoholic, and they've been dry for a while, they come over to your house, you enjoy the liberty of drinking wine, you say, oh, go ahead and have one drink, it's not going to hurt you. And then the next thing you know, maybe that person who has a history of drunkenness falls back into that sin. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. 
And so my focus should not only be on what is lawful and not, but my focus should be on what is loving and not. We have the law to consider, but we also have the love to consider of how we practice our liberties with one another and being careful not to offend the weaker brother. We are not to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. The word hindrance here at the end of verse 13, that word means a trap. It means a temptation. It means an enticement. Maybe the stronger brother is fine drinking uh, alcohol in moderation, no big deal, unless exercising his liberty becomes a stumbling block or a hindrance to the weak. And so at that point, we must decide, we must think through and come to a God-honoring decision that puts others and their spiritual welfare in front of my right to practice my own liberty, even though Verse 14 is clear. Look at Romans 14. Now look at verse 14. It says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So Paul's just reminding us as we've looked at this now for our second week, he's convinced from the Lord Jesus that no food is unclean in and of itself. He was likely aware of Peter's vision in Joppa in Acts 10 verse 15 when he had the vision of everything coming down in the sheet and then Jesus told him, kill and eat. Peter's like, no way, I can't kill some of these animals because they're forbidden according to the dietary restrictions of the old covenant. And Jesus then said, what God has made clean, do not call common. In other words, what God has called clean, don't call unclean. And so Jesus is now helping the Jews understand that what once was a restriction of eating pork and eating shellfish is now a freedom that you have in Christ. And for the For the Greeks here, they were struggling with eating food that was sacrificed to idols. And even though there was nothing wrong with that, if it brought them back to their propensity of falling into the pagan culture and practices that sometimes surrounded the meat sacrificed to idols, then it would defile their conscience and therefore they could not eat it. And so we're seeing here how we're supposed to be willing to give those things up. As we read here, do not put a stumbling block in the way of a brother. That's what God's called us to do. We are our brother's keeper. You do have a responsibility. You don't have the right just to say, well, that's his problem. You don't have the right to say, well, that's not in the Bible. He should be able to exercise that liberty if he wants. I can't be here and police the whole world. If that's your attitude, that's a prideful, unloving, sinful attitude. So let me move on to the next point here. C, do not provoke grief in the heart of your brother. Don't provoke grief in the heart of your brother. Verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So if you were to eat meat sacrificed to idols and your brother was grieved by that, then you are no longer walking in love. The the word grieved here means to cause severe mental or emotional distress. The word grieved here means to irritate. It means to insult. In the NASB, if you have that translation in front of you, it's translated as to hurt. Don't hurt the weaker brother. A weak Christian can be hurt or distressed from watching another Christian say or do something that he considers as sinful. And so the hurt is even deeper if the offending believer is admired and respected by the weaker one. 
This word grieved is a serious word. It's the same word that we read about with the rich young ruler in Mark 10, 22. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieved for he was one who owned much property. Again, we read this same word about those who have no hope grieving in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who fall asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Same word, grieved, is used in Ephesians 4.30. The Holy Spirit is grieved when we sin. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So to be causing someone to grieve by your action or your attitude is a serious sin. And so really the key to Romans 14 is not Well, what does God allow and what does he not allow? We're already told in verse 3 that God welcomes us into his arms, whether we decide to practice our Christian liberties or not. So it's not about what do you do and not do. It's more about how do you love brothers who view things differently? How do you love your fellow man who in the area of Christian liberties have a different thought or a different practice or a different conviction? Are you in that moment practicing your liberty in such a way that would cause your brother to stumble? Because our goal is not to practice our liberty. That's not the goal of the Christian. I want to practice every liberty I can, as much as I can, and as long as I can. That's not the goal of a Christian. The goal of as a Christian is I want to love everybody I can And any way that I can to show the love of Christ. And so I, as a Christian, am choosing to think carefully about whether or not I might practice a given Christian liberty in a certain context. And the last part of verse 15 says, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. The word destroy there, also a very serious word. It means to cause destruction. It means to ruin. Uh, In some places in the New Testament, this word is indicating eternal damnation. Like in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That same word, that same word there for destroy is also translated as perish in John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so here in Romans 14, I do not believe that the word destroy means eternal damnation, but rather it is referencing a serious devastation to a new believer's faith. It is a temporary destruction. A young believer is still weak in his knowledge of God's word and how to apply the principles of God's word. So if the stronger believer ignores that sensitivity, he could be crushing the budding faith of a new believer. And then Paul is saying that Jesus died for this weaker believer. And who are you to put that in jeopardy? Jesus died for that brother and that sister. And if the weaker brother is truly saved, then of course they will make it through this confusing confrontation of critical differences. But why would you want to harm the weaker brother when you could be helping them? I mean, if the whole point of the Christian life is to love others, love God and love others, then why wouldn't we want to do whatever we can to help them instead of be in jeopardy of possibly hurting them? And so our first challenge to the stronger brother this morning 
is to love and do not destroy your brother. The second challenge, number two, let not your freedoms lead to evil. Your next blank there in A says, taking a freedom too far would be spoken of as evil. Look at verse 16. This just makes sense, doesn't it? So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Do Christians have liberties? Yes. Do Christians have freedom to enjoy various liberties in a way that honors Christ and shows thankfulness? Yes. But if a stronger brother is flaunting his liberty in a way that is putting a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother, then his liberty that was supposed to be regarded as good will now be, according to verse 16, it will be spoken of as evil. So a good thing can be evil when you're doing it in the wrong context. Turn with me, in fact, if you will, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That's over to the right, just one book. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is addressing this same issue to the church of Corinth. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 25 through 26 says this, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So he's saying, hey, if you're going to somebody's house and they're serving meat, don't even worry about whether it's sacrificed to idols or not. We know that everything belongs to the Lord. It's all God's. You can eat whatever you want. Don't raise a question. Don't make it an issue. And then look at verse 27 through 29. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you have disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice... Then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. Let's just pause right there for a moment. He's saying if you're in a situation like what's being described, there's an unbeliever who invites you and another family over to dinner. And while they're getting ready for dinner, they're cooking the best steak that you've ever smelled in your life. And you're ready to eat this meat, and all of a sudden, your fellow Christian who's there with you elbows you in the ribs and says, hey, I just saw that this man bought this meat at the market of, 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 the, of, the, of the meat sacrificed to idols where, where they practice paganism. He's like, I can't eat this meat. And the question is, well, what do you do in that moment? In that moment, you realize, I'm here with a weaker brother. I mean, the first thing you're probably going to say is, oh, shoot. Why did he have to show up for dinner, right? Oh, man. You know, but what you should be doing is in that moment, you should say, you know what? I can see right now I have a choice to make. I can either offend the unbeliever who's serving the food because if we don't eat the meat, he's going to think we're all crazy and I'm trying to win him to Christ. So that almost looks like the better route to go, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, don't offend your brother, Don't offend this guy who's with you, because if this guy is with you, you want to love him so much so that it might even cause the unbeliever to look at the love that you have between each other and to be moved in his heart that both of you decided not to eat the meat because it offended his conscience, the conscience of the weaker brother. In fact, look at the rest of verse 29 and verse 30. Again, I do not mean your conscience, but his, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So what what are these verses saying? Well, they're saying that you, as the stronger brother, do not need to change your convictions to line up with the conscience of the weaker brother, but 
you do need to change your behavior when you are with the weaker brother in his presence. Otherwise, the weaker brother might act against his conscience and harm himself, which would bring reproach upon the stronger brother. And so what the stronger brother might enjoy privately with thankfulness may become in the presence of the weaker brother a disgrace. So in that particular moment, let your liberty be guided by his conscience. Doesn't mean you change your view on it. It just means right here, right now, I'm going to allow my conscience to be captive to the word of God that tells me I need to love my brother in such a way that I'm, really re- I'm ready to give up this liberty in a way that would honor him. And so this is what Romans 14, back to Romans 14, 16, is talking about. He's saying, don't let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. Don't flaunt your liberty. Don't practice your liberty in the presence of another if you know that it's going to cause them to be offended or destroy their younger and more delicate faith. And then verse 17 tells us this, your next blank, fighting for righteousness Peace and joy are more important than liberties. Verse 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The, the, the term here, the kingdom of God, is a reference to Christianity. It's a reference to those who are in the faith. He's talking about what it looks like to be a Christian and how you live out your life as a Christian. He's focusing on here things that really matter, big fish issues like righteousness and peace and joy. He's saying that's what we need to be focused on as believers, not on this whole deal about eating meat sacrificed to idols or drinking alcohol. He's like, I'd much rather you focus on righteousness in our daily living should be more precious to us than practicing our liberties. And righteousness here is both positional and practical. It's positionable. It's positional by placing you in a right standing with God. Romans 3.22 tells us that the righteousness of God comes through faith, that it is faith alone and Christ alone that makes you righteous. In order to positionally be righteous before God, God declares you as forgiven and adopts you into his family, and he says that he does not hold your sins against you because of what he did to Jesus on the cross. Jesus paid for our sins. And so in that moment, you're declared righteous. You're made righteous. We talk about the imputation of Christ's righteousness, that everything that Christ did, who never sinned, who never failed, who died before God, and before this world in a way that he could pay for the sins of anybody that would repent and believe in him, you can be made righteous. And he's like, that's what we ought to be talking about, the positional righteousness we have before God. But as someone who has been given that righteousness from Christ, we also are called to live a righteous life. So to live a righteous life is oftentimes used in a negative connotation, like, oh, you just think you're so righteous. Well, that's not what the Bible's talking about. He tells us that we are to pursue righteousness. First Timothy 6.11, but you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness and godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And so those who have been made righteous ought to be living a righteous lifestyle. We ought to be making choices every day to honor God with how we live. It's a fight. Every day you have to fight to be righteous before God, not positionally. That was accomplished by Jesus on the cross, but practically, 
fighting the battle with sin every day. And this is why Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so he's telling us, you're made righteous by Christ, You're to pursue righteousness by making choices every moment of every day. And that's what the kingdom of God is about. It's not about rituals. And it's not about diet. And it's not about external things. And stop making Christian liberties being such a big deal. Because what's a big deal to God is the righteousness of Christ. And so what we got to be focusing on is that righteousness. And then he says also on peace that we would have peace with God through the gospel. And that peace that we have with God through the gospel would give us peace with one another. That those who exist in this church as fellow brothers and sisters, that we would have peace with them. That we ought not to be biting and devouring one another over our differences about Christian liberties. We ought to be having, having unity and peace within our church. And that's a beautiful witness to a lost and dying world. It is a dog-eat-dog world out there, and it ought to be a place of peace and rest and a safe haven in here of unity and love. And Paul had already said this earlier in Romans 12, 10 through 13, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another, showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. That's where God wants us to put our focus, is that we have that kind of peaceful unity with one another. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can live like that. Righteousness, peace, not bickering, debating, controversial matters. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. And in doing that, we find great joy. He tells us here that we need to have joy in the Holy Spirit. We're talking about one of the fruits of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I mean, wouldn't it be great if your heart was all about those things this morning, that you're here this morning, you're all about the righteousness of God and living a holy life, and you're all about having peace with one another, and you're filled with joy to the brim, to where you sing, you can't help, but it just comes out of your soul. Wouldn't it be great if that was your heart this morning? Wouldn't it be great if that consumed your heart throughout the day? Wouldn't it be great if that's all you wanted to talk about with your brothers and your sisters is you wanted to talk about righteousness and peace and joy. These incredible doctrines are what the kingdom of God is all about. And then we see verses 18 and 19, serving Christ and pursuing peace is building up your brother. Verses 18 and 19, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and not, excuse me, what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And so if you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will be acceptable to God, which means you will be pleasing to God. The word approved here in verse 18 means accepting after careful examination. This would be like if you found some jewels in your grandma's closet after she passed away and you didn't know if these jewels were genuine or not or just a collection of something that she had bought at some, uh, some souvenir store or something. And so you take them into the jeweler and after careful examination, they're able to tell you, no, these jewels are for real. 
These are authentic. These are worth thousands of dollars. And what the scripture is saying here is that when we examine, when we're examined before God, he sees the genuineness of our faith. And that when we're living a life of love, verse 18 says that we're approved by men. They see that there's something different in us, that we, there's a careful examination that's been made by our character. And now we understand that when we serve Christ selflessly, not serve our hobby horses and not serve our liberties, but when we serve Christ we prove to be, as Philippians 2.15 says, blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So people are watching your character and how you live and how you live and treat one another shows the authenticity and the value and the genuineness of your faith. And as we're living faithfully before our God, we are pursuing peace in a way that is building each other up. I'm pursuing holiness. You're pursuing holiness. I'm serving Christ. You're serving Christ. I'm making peace with you. You're making peace with me. And when you're in a church environment like that, we are not tearing each other down, but we are building each other up. That's what God's called us to. Christian liberties were never meant to destroy an individual or a church. They're only meant for us to understand that they're a part of the Christian life, but not the point of the Christian life, which is why Romans 15, the next chapter, says we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be pleasing God. We're supposed to be pleasing our neighbor, not like in the people-pleasing way, but meaning that we're approved by them because our character, our love, and our unity is focused on building each other up. And so let me ask you, how's it going, Placerita? How do you feel like we're doing as a church when it comes to Christian liberties? How are you doing as an individual? Are you taking your freedoms too far? If so, then they could be spoken of as evil. And so I'm challenging you this morning and myself that we would be fighting for righteousness and for peace and for joy. Let's serve Christ together and build each other up in a way that the world would know that we're Christians because they see a special deference preferring one another in a way that you don't usually see in the world that we live in. So a third challenge I want to give to you, particularly if you're the stronger brother, would be number three, let go of your liberties if they are causing your brother to stumble. Your next blank says, don't destroy God's work in the weaker brother. Verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So we've already heard this point. He's reiterating it. But this verse is saying that God is working in our midst. And he's working in you. And God is working in me. And God is saving us by his sovereign grace. And he's growing us each and every day more and more into the image of Christ. And so don't wreck that mission. Don't tear down the work of God. It's not worth it. And even though we know everything is clean, it all came down in the sheet we discussed, Acts 10. 1 Timothy 4, 4 through 5 also says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Titus 1, 15 says, To the pure, 
all things are pure. That means that, 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 means that if that meat that you're eating, even if it was sacrificed to idols, if that's pure to you and you're eating it with a pure heart of thankfulness to God, then to the pure, all things are pure. But if the weaker brother doesn't see it that way, it would be wrong for you who have knowledge to influence or even make another stumble by what he eats. Remember 1 Corinthians 8, 9, but take care this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Also, your next blank says, don't insist on doing anything that causes your brother to stumble. Verse 21 says, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Again, in this setting, when the stronger brother and the weaker brother are together, Paul says, it's not a good idea. He says, it's not good for you to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. You need to be willing to give up pork at the table with a newer believing Jew. You need to be willing to give up meat sacrifice to idols at the table with a newer believing Gentile. You need to be willing to give up drinking wine in front of a newer believer if he has a weak conscience. He's saying, I'm willing to give up any and all of my Christian liberties at the expense of causing my brother to stumble. And Paul feels so strong about it. He says in 1 Corinthians 8, 13, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. When he says, I will never eat meat, I believe that he means I will never eat meat in their presence. He's not saying that that person from then on has to adopt the same conviction and never eat meat again in his life ever. He's saying in that moment, in that context, I will never eat meat again. You can eat it in private. You can eat it in the company of other stronger believers, but you can't eat it in the company of believers who would be offended. Liberties are not to be given up altogether. If we're not careful, we could read this and be like, okay, well, everybody's got to chase down the weaker brother and let's all do what they want to do all the time everywhere, even when we're not in their presence. And that's not what he's saying. He's like, just don't eat it in their presence. Liberties are not to be given up altogether, but they are to be sacrificed temporarily on the altar of Christian unity when eating and drinking with those that would take an offense that you're in their presence. And so what does this mean for us? This means before you sit down to have a drink, you should always be aware of who's in your presence. If you're having someone at your home or you're in a restaurant and you don't know them well enough to know whether or not they may be offended if you order a drink, a glass of wine or whatever, you should ask them. You shouldn't just take for granted that you know they'll be okay with it, and so you just do it right in front of them as if it's no big deal. It would be polite and kind in a Christian environment. When two Christians are sitting down, it would be kind for you to at least ask them, would they be okay if you were to order a drink? This means that when you're hanging out with your friends and you're about to watch a movie together or go over to a theater together and you're all lined up. You remember movies? We used to go to them in the theater. Remember that? All right, so you're all lined up. You're trying to pick the movie and half the group wants to go to this movie and half the group's like, ah, I don't know if we should go to that. Instead of the stronger group saying, no, nah, man, we're going to this. It's going to be awesome. They should immediately say, hey, what movie do you guys want to see? 
Oh, you want to see Pixar? Me too. I like Pixar. You know, what, what, what do you want to see? Because we want to be careful about how we exercise our liberties in any and in every situation, even if you're in your own home. You want to be very aware of where people are because God created us to love him and to love each other. And we need to respect our differences in a way that everyone would feel loved and encouraged. I mean, I've been there on both sides of this thing. I've been in groups that wanted to go do one thing. And I'm like, I can't do that. And there's been times I've had to pull out and just be like, you know, I'm just not doing it. And, you know, I may have been offended. I may not. But I just know I just couldn't do it. You want to be in the side of the group that's always checking, what about you? What about you? What, how are you doing it? In the youth ministry, we always tell people, you got to call your parents. You know, you're trying to make a hard call. Should we do this or not? Every one of you is going to call your parents right now. And if every one of your parents says go, then we're going, all right? Because not, I'm not going without that. You know, so you have to be careful and understand that we're willing to let go of our liberties if it's causing a brother to stumble. And then our last challenge to the stronger brother and there's a little challenge at the very end here for the weaker brother would be this. Number four, live out your faith between you and God. Verse 22, your next blank says, the stronger brother should live a life above reproach. Verse 22 again says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. And so when Paul says here that we are to keep the faith that you have between yourself and God, he's not talking about the faith. He's talking here more about keep uh, right with God and how you're living out your faith. So that in that moment, when you're together with the weaker brother, that you're living out your life in a way that shows humility and deference. You're deferring what you would do or could do on your own to what they might want to do based on their conscience in that moment. In that moment, he's saying, basically, don't exercise your liberty. But in that moment, exercise your love. Make the main thing the main thing. Don't get into an argument. Don't, in that moment, chastise your brother. Don't belittle them. Understanding your liberty is understanding that you don't have to exercise it. True freedom is giving up your liberty out of your love for another. And at any time, if you find yourself getting uptight or red-faced, or defensive about your liberty is a good time for you to stop and check and see whether or not if the exercise of that liberty has somehow become an idol in your heart. In other words, if someone's challenging you about the liberties that you're practicing and it might be offending a brother and all of a sudden a strong person is like, hey, I can do whatever I want. The Bible says it's all good. If that's the way you respond immediately, you better check yourself to make sure that has not somehow become an idol in your heart. It is possible that as the stronger brother, you are now in bondage to your liberty. And Christ is saying, the scriptures are saying, it's love over liberty. We love each other so much, we're going to fight for love every time, but we'll, we'll give up our liberties at any time. And maybe you're here today and you have the liberty to drink alcohol. If that's you this morning, you're, you're fine here. You're welcome here. We have, we have a desire to encourage people to exercise their liberties before God in a way that honors the Lord and, and with a thankful heart. But at the same time, you've got to check yourself to make sure that you have never become enslaved to alcohol. I've seen one 
too many of a stronger brother say, I'm fine, I'm fine, it's my liberty, it's my liberty. And before you know it, again, it becomes their idol to the point that they get angry when someone starts to ask questions to hold them accountable. Maybe you're here right now and God is speaking to your heart through his word in a way that you're being convicted in this moment by the Holy Spirit about maybe giving up a certain liberty and you're already giving arguments about why you don't have to do that. And I just want to caution you that you need to understand that practicing a liberty must be more of a, of a, of a, of a give and take thing than I have to do it kind of thing. It, it needs to be more of something that's optional, not something that you have to do. If it becomes more of a bad habit than a blessing to you or to others, then that's a problem. Listen to me. Liberties must never become necessities. If a liberty becomes a necessity, then you are living in idolatry. So you have to be careful. I'm going to give it up at any moment, at any time, because I love Christ and I love my brother so much so that that liberty means nothing to me. And I'll drop it today and never do it again, at least in that person's presence. Galatians 5.13, we're called to freedom brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. So in Galatians, he's like, hey, you're free, but don't use that as an excuse to now go out and sin, being selfish, prideful, doing what you want. Use that as an opportunity to love and serve one another. If you are free, then use that freedom to serve others. Don't be deceived. My brothers and sisters, ask others to help you to examine those things that you enjoy in your life to see whether or not that you're using them as a freedom or as an opportunity for the flesh. Are you giving them up so that you can serve one another? First Peter 2.16 says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. He's saying here, look, don't cover it up. That's a freedom that you've taken too far and it's become sinful in your heart. Confess it before the Lord. Better to be someone who is cautious than someone who is careless. Better to be enthralled with the beauty and the holiness of God than to be entangled with the deception of sin. I would rather have less experiences in this life, but the ones I do have are wholesome and above reproach than to experience everything that I can and somehow get tripped up in my own sin or in causing another to stumble. I would say, when in doubt, throw it out. When unsure, worshiping Christ is the cure. When uncertain, close the curtain. Okay, that's kind of cheesy. All right, but you know... <laughs> I'm just saying, like, if there's a question mark, get rid of it. Like, why do we fight for these things? We want to fight for love, love of God, love of his word, love for neighbor. neighbor. I'll fight for that all day, but I'm not going to sit around and fight for liberties. The last little point here, B, the weaker brother should never eat if it's not from faith. Verse 23, but whoever has doubts, that's the weaker brother, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith 
is sin. So this verse is directed to the weaker brother, and he's being told not to eat meat if he can't eat it with a clear conscience. The best thing for the weaker brother to do is to not sin against his conscience, but rather to inform his conscience by using God's word. And only after a careful study of scripture and some time to mature in his faith, hopefully the weaker brother will grow into the stronger brother. But in the meantime, never sear your conscience. Never ignore your conscience. Never rationalize away what your conscience is convicting you of. Inform your conscience using God's word. There are certain truths that all Christians must accept because they are the foundation for the faith. But areas of honest disagreement about Christian liberties must not be a point of division between those who love Christ. If you have a sincere conviction about a matter, keep it between yourself and do not try to force everyone else to accept it. Even if your convictions are immature, you should never violate your conscience. That would do great damage to your spiritual life. We want to obey God's law. We want to have a lot of liberty to do what we can in a way that honors him, and we want to love one another. Now, I want to close this particular service a little bit differently than we typically do. I just want you to take a moment and bow your heads, if you will. If you'll just bow your heads and close your eyes. I just think this is an important time for us to do a little introspection, similar to how we might do in a small group or in a time between you and your wife or you and your family. If you're here this morning with your eyes closed and your head bowed and you, you've considered yourself as the stronger brother, or by the way, nobody really wants to consider themselves as the weaker brother. So if you're here today and you've considered yourselves as a stronger brother, would you right here, right now, I'll give you just a minute, would you right here, right now, would you just ask God to show you if there is some liberty in your life that you've exercised or that you are exercising that the Lord in his sovereign power through his word this morning is, is making it aware that you've been hurting a weaker brother. That's you this morning. Would you just confess that before the Lord right now? If you're here this morning and you're the stronger brother, has there been more pride in your, in your heart to the rights that you believe you have to exercise your liberties than there is a willingness to defer to the weaker brother? In other words, are you more passionate about the exercise of the liberty or about giving it up to show love to the weaker brother? If that's you this morning, you're struggling with that, would you just confess that to the Lord right now, that you've been, more, you've been more uptight about your freedoms than about loving your neighbor? If you're the stronger brother this morning, is it possible that a particular liberty has become an idol in your life and in your heart? And maybe just here at the end of the sermon, as we've kind of come around and said, you know, we've got to be careful that what we're fighting for does not become an idol in your heart, would you just take a moment and ask God to show you through his word whether or not a particular freedom that you love so much possibly has become an idol in your life and you want to get help from somebody that could help point that out to you and help you think through that and help you be in bondage no more to that idol. Would you just think about that? Confess that to the Lord even right now and ask for his help.
Maybe you're here this morning and you are the weaker brother. You admit that there's a lot of things happening in our church, in other people's lives that you don't like. And you feel like their, their liberty has become a license. And you've been judging people in your heart. And you've been really living out of fear. And you've been living based more on a performance than anything else. If that's you this morning as the weaker brother, would you just right now before the Lord ask him to show you through his word what would be appropriate for you to do in each and every situation? Would you ask God to strengthen you, to encourage you, and to take away any spirit of judgment that you would ever have over someone else who might see those same things in a different light? God, I'm thankful for opportunities for us as stronger and weaker brothers. And maybe in some areas we're stronger and some other areas we're weaker. So we all fit probably both of these roles more than we would like to admit. But dear God, we're just confessing before you here at this moment, on this day, don't let us be in bondage to legalism. God, we don't want to hold up certain preferences and particulars as being something that we would die for. And I'm praying, God, that you would break the back of legalism on the cross of Jesus Christ and that you would show each one of us in our hearts that we are free in Christ from any sin, including the sin of self-righteousness. God, we pray that you would also help that stronger brother today who enjoys exercising his liberties. Would you help him to be cautious? Would you help him to be careful? Would you help him, her, to be willing to give up any liberty at any moment, at any time, if it were to ever cause one of these precious saints, a brother or sister in Christ, to somehow stumble. God, help us not to be a church that judges our brothers and sisters who exercise their liberties in accordance with their own convictions. Instead, God, we pray that we would give grace and that we would give mercy and that we would just give some room and some space for us as a church that still function as completely unified, as completely standing on the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ who died in our place so that we could be justified, so that we could be made holy, so that we could be made right before you, God. We're so thankful that you've made us righteous and we want that peace of God that passes all understanding, that peace with you, that peace with others to allow us to pursue unity and to walk in love. And I pray, Lord, that as we've examined so many of these things, even as they've related partially to us meeting indoors, outdoors, wearing masks, not wearing masks, doing certain things, not doing certain things, wine, alcohol, music, so many gray areas that we want to consider this morning throughout this series that you would help us come to a healthy conclusion. And our conclusion is, God, we love you more. We love you more than our preferences we love you more than anything else that we hold to in this world. Help us to categorize appropriately what goes where. Help us at the end of the day just to look to Christ, to love you, and to be willing to love our brother and our sister, no matter what their view may be on these secondary and tertiary issues, these issues of Christian liberties. God, we love you. We thank you for giving us a few weeks to examine all of these things. We pray for continued wisdom and protection. We pray that as a church that we would continue to love and encourage and support one another and that you would light a fire in our hearts, Lord, that we would want to worship you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we wouldn't let anything stop us and nothing would slow us down, that we would exercise those one another's in such a way that would be so beautiful, that we would be the aroma of those moving from life to life, a fragrance in your nostrils this morning 
of a pleasing aroma of our obedience and our desire to elevate and exalt Jesus Christ in all of our beliefs and in all of our behaviors and in everything that we do. And so as we sing this final song, encourage our hearts, bless us the rest of this day as we talk about what we've learned, how we can put it into application. May we do so in love for you and for each other. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.